IPC, it's great to be with you. We're studying the Father's 10 Good Words, what's commonly known as the Ten Commandments. We're in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, where we get these 10 good words from our good Father. I'd like for you to pause and read these 10 commandments, at least up to verse 13, which has our commandment, our good word for the day. I bet you that if I took a poll of the congregation, Maybe even if I took a poll of people here in Zurich and, we, and I just said, can you name the Ten Commandments? I bet given enough time, almost everybody, 100% or close to it, would be able to come up with the Sixth Commandment. Everybody knows, thou shalt not kill. So let me ask you this, how are you doing with the Sixth Commandment? Feels like a yes or no question, right? Like, I either am or I am not breaking the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. But before you answer that question, we need to back up and we need to listen a little bit closer to the sixth good word from our good father. Because in this word, the father says to his children, not just don't kill, but also treasure my life. So let's look at the sixth good word and we'll look at it like this with four headings. First, the hand of violence, then the heart of violence, then the heart of life-giving love, and finally, the hands of life-giving love. Hand of violence, heart of violence, heart of life-giving love, the hands of life-giving love. So first, the hand of violence. You shall not kill. Pretty straightforward, right? Well, actually, the first, or rather, the the sixth good word insists that we treasure, first of all, God's own life, and then that we treasure God's life-giving lordship. He's the Lord of life and death. And therefore, ultimately, that we treasure the life of our neighbor, that we treasure everyone made to bear God's image. You and I are given our hands. Why? In order that we might tend and keep the garden with them, our father's garden. We've been given hands to hold one another in friendship. We've been given hands to lift up people who are down in the pit. We've been given hands to help old ladies carry groceries across the street when they're in need. We've been given our hands for these purposes. But as soon as we humans turned away from our Father's loving kindness and we went on our own way, we started we started turning toward one another, not in loving kindness, but actually in wrath. And then what became of our hands? Our hands became quick to shed blood. Our hands became covered in the blood of sisters and brothers. And you might be thinking, Pastor, you're sounding awfully dramatic here, right? You started off very poetic and now you're all dramatic. All our hands are stained in blood. Okay, I'm being dramatic, right? But think of it this way. I'm not being any more dramatic than the Bible itself is being. Chapter one, a poem of God's loving care and creation, how God uses his hands. Chapter two, a story specifically of how you and I were made in God's image as the crown of of creation to be God's hands in the world. Chapter three, we take our hands and grab a hold of what was forbidden us and we despise God's loving kindness. And then chapter four, the very next chapter, we commit our first act of murder and it's fratricide. Think about it this way. The world's first mother loses a son 
at the violent hands of a murderer. And guess who that murderer was? It was the son that was left after the murder. Imagine the grief in that mother's heart. Imagine the grief in the father's heart. Imagine the grief in the heavenly father's heart. God breathes into the human being the breath of life on page one of our Bibles, but by page four, human beings are taking the breath out of one another's lives. So then by the time we get to Exodus, by the time of Israel's bondage in Egypt, wow, Pharaoh had turned the murder impulse of Cain in chapter four of Genesis into a sophisticated bureaucratic death machine. That's what Egypt was by the time of Israel's liberation. Pharaoh, after all, was, was killing infants and doing it as a matter of national security. So when the good father then reaches into Egypt and saves his adopted son Israel's life, adopting Israel as his own, and the father gets around to expressing the desires of his heart to Israel, what is he going to say? Well, he's going to say, it's my desire to bring you children into abundant life. And ultimately, through the life that I give you to bring the nations, even these death-dealing nations, into abundant life through your abundant life. So when he gives his 10 good words, one of them is treasure life, treasure my life, treasure the life of my image bearers. Do not kill. See, our father is determined to stop the hand of violence and to change the hand of violence into a hand of peace. Uh, as the prophets say, the father wants to see swords turned into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. And it's not going to happen overnight, even with his dear children, but the father is determined to make a start with this people, with his family, with us. So, okay, what exactly is the sixth good word? You shall not murder, verse 13 says. Murder is a little bit bad for an English translation. It makes us think of premeditated, cold-blooded killing, right? But the Hebrew word here that's used is actually the same one that we would use when we were talking about the, the taking life of an animal. You don't murder animals, you kill them. And so scholars think that probably the best English word anyway here, the best concept is manslaying, right? We must so treasure the father's life that we're careful not to take human lives, either intentionally or unintentionally. He shall not take the life of an image bearer. Now, in the past 250 years or so, much of the world, especially the Western world, has moved towards more and more secular governance, right? Why? Well, the original idea was, gosh, there have been so many wars over religion, wars in the name of God, especially in Europe, that they thought, well, perhaps all of this killing in the name of one God or another should stop. And they were right, it should. And so they came up with secular society and secular governance, secular nation states. But what's happened? Well, the taking of life is now done in another name other than the name of God. Now it's done in the name of country. 
or of convenience or comfort or commerce or even culture. The reality that we've seen in the last 250 years is that civilization can be pretty barbaric after all. And so we're just as desperate today in the 21st century for the sixth good word as the ancient world was to hear it. Because after all, God, the giver of life, is the only Lord of life and death. Not any elected official, not any judge, no doctor, no lab technician, no patriot is the Lord and giver of life, but only our God and Father. And you and I, whether we like it or not, whether we ever think about it, we are actually entangled in systems that enable humans to pretend that they are, in fact, the lords of life and death. And so none of us are completely with clean hands in this matter. Now you might think, well, that's awfully abstract, Pastor. Okay, I'm guilty because I live in a civilization that takes lives in man's name. True. But I've never killed anybody. You and I would never directly murder someone, would we? Well, I hope not, right? But David didn't wake up one day, see Bathsheba bathing, and then decide right then and there, I'm going to murder her husband. That stuff came later, after David was tangled up in this web of deceit and, and sin. The reality is that you and I don't know when our sin is going to get us into a situation where the only exit strategy for us seems to be to actually take a life. The theologian John Owen, after whom I named my son, said, you and I must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And the sixth good word says even more says that we must be killing the sin in us or we'll be killing others with the sin that remains in us. And so the Father's sixth good word is not just going after our violent hands, but also after the heart of violence, secondly. Sam preached on it, Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus' teaching on anger and murder last week. According to Peter Lightheart. Jesus is teaching us there that you can actually murder with any part of your body, not just your hands. And so, according to Jesus, if I allow anger to fester in my heart until it turns into contempt for a person who bears God's image, well, Jesus says, well, then I've plugged my ears to the sixth good word and I've despised the Father who speaks the sixth good word to me. The reality is that out of the overflow of my angry heart, my contemptuous heart, my mouth is soon going to speak. And I'm going to be shouting over the sixth good word from our good father so that my neighbor doesn't get to hear my father's words of love ringing from my lips, but rather hears my words of hatred and condemnation and contempt. Friends, if we realize that our hearts are beginning to set themselves up with contempt against someone in angry judgment, then Jesus says we must act. It's urgent for us to go and reconcile if we can. 
Jesus says that that reconciliation attempt is more urgent than formal public worship is because, in fact, repenting of our bitter hearts and pursuing one another in love is, according to Jesus, an act of worship. Because if I will not have a brother or sister as brother or sister, then I can't pretend to come to God the Father as if he was my God and Father. As so many people have said, and this is going to sound like awful news, but over and over Christians have said this. The seed of every, um, the seed of every imaginable sin is present in every human heart. Isn't that shocking? But it's true. The seed of any imaginable sin is present in every human heart. Alexander Solzhenitsyn puts it like this. The line separating good and evil passes not through countries, through states, not between classes, not between political parties, but right through every human heart. And until you and I are really honest about that, then we are honestly dangerous because we have hearts of violence. But, but, when we actually do hear the Father's sixth good word, when we hear the Son speak it even more clearly in Matthew chapter 5, for example, when we actually realize that murder has found its way subtly into our hearts, onto our lips, maybe even in one way or another, onto our hands, when we're ready to admit it, then we're finally ready to experience, third, the heart of life-giving love and to have our hearts become hearts as well of life-giving love. You see, our hearts were made to be the beating center of our lives. From our hearts were meant to flow the lifeblood of friendship and collaboration and corporate worship. The center of our being was meant to be a small replica of the beating, life-giving, truth and goodness and beauty-desiring heart of God our Father. It's supposed to be right here. And where, after all, do we see the heart of God our Father replicated so beautifully and perfectly? Well, we see it in the Father's true Son, in Jesus. As I said last week, you know, I'm a pleasant person, I think I'm a pleasant person to be around when I feel good, when I'm not over-caffeinated or hangry or something, when I don't have a toothache. I'm grouchy when I feel bad, not very pleasant to be around. I'm angry when I feel threatened. But thanks be to God, not Jesus. Doctors, when they want to know how strong an individual heart patient's heart is, what do they do? Well, they subject that heart to a stress test, right? In the suffering of the Lord Jesus, the very heart of God undergoes the most rigorous stress test that you can imagine. Can the Father's heart, beating in the Son's chest, withstand all of the anger and the hatred and the envy and the violence of the unchecked, fallen, violent human heart. Jesus goes through the stress test 
And the answer is, he passes with flying colors. It remains a heart of life-giving love in the face of death-dealing hate. And only the Father's life-giving heart of love beating in the chest of the Lord Jesus, his Son, is able then to capture our hearts, our hearts that are so prone to violence, and is able to kill our sin with its kindness. Only Jesus' heart, which is the Father's heart, can do that. But once it does, once he does, then you and I, fourthly, can begin to have hands of life-giving love. Hands of life-giving love. You see, our hearts were meant to pump blood to our hands and to our feet. And that's the vision of the sixth good word from our good Father. The Father doesn't just tell us to avoid killing our neighbor. The Son doesn't simply call us to quit calling also, in addition to this, our neighbor a fool or to quit harboring anger toward our neighbor. But there's more going on here. The sixth good word has more life to give than just that. The father wants to see his children embody thou shalt not kill like Jesus did. Jesus embodied the sixth good word. Think about this. In his every attitude and word and action, in every gift that he gave, in every way that he liberated someone who was oppressed, in every word of truth that he spoke in the midst of lies, in every word of forgiveness in the midst of condemnation, of every word of hope in the midst of despair, Jesus acts and speaks and attitudes the Father's sixth good word in every kindness that leads toward repentance unto life. Jesus gave with his whole being, just like his father. And the father then longs for the same self-giving love that he sees perfectly in his son from all of his children, from us. And how in the world can this happen? Well, it's hard. In our fallen, broken world, if we decide to reach out with a hand of life-giving love, We're not going to do so perfectly. And in fact, reaching out with hands of life-giving love is going to call it for for us to have uh, both spiritual and even social imagination. We need to put on the thinking caps of Christian love here if we are going to help and bless people in a way that doesn't hurt them in the process. So we have to be brave enough, don't we, to dare, but we have to be wise enough to dare with great care to help our neighbor bless them. To really fulfill the sixth good word, therefore, we're gonna have to listen a lot to our neighbor. We're gonna have to think along with our neighbor. We're going to have to say a lot of I'm sorry when even our best intentions turn out to be hurtful sometimes. Because to truly love, to truly have hands of life-giving love means that we in our broken world have to be vulnerable And a heart that doesn't love might be invulnerable, but as Lewis says so well, that kind of heart is dead. The living heart, by contrast, is connected vitally to living hands. And a living human person in God's image who wants to reach out with hands of life-giving love must keep loving even when they fail to do it so well. You and I are called to courageously, 
vulnerably, wisely, humbly, but also with divine authority, continue to circulate the love, the lifeblood of the very heart of our Father through the Son and in the Spirit to our neighbors out in the world. Because every man and woman and child, after all, was made in God's image to have the Father's own lifeblood pumping through their veins, animating their actions and words and attitudes with the Father's own love. And as the Father sent the Son to reach us with his own life-giving lifeblood, so the Son has sent us to reach one another in the world with his lifeblood. So let me ask, what would it look like, what would it sound like, what would it feel like for your neighbor, for your colleague, for your children, for the person that's been irritating you recently, to actually be reached by hands of life-giving love that belong to you? If you and I have a hard time imagining what that actually looks, feels, and sounds like, then you and I need to bury ourselves in the Gospels and in the character of the Lord Jesus until we have seen and heard and felt Jesus' own heart and hands of life-giving love emerge from those pages. If we watch Jesus, hear Jesus, and ourselves encounter Jesus with his open hands and with his open heart, it will not only become possible spiritually for us to imagine what it looks like to love our neighbor practically, but we will be devoted from the heart to actually doing it. Because after all, Jesus is the one who can capture our hearts and begin to circulate his Father's own lifeblood. And he circulates that lifeblood right here, right at the place where death threatened to undo humanity from the inside out. In your heart, and in my heart, and then out through our hands. I'm confident that he's able and willing, and in fact has promised to do this for all of his children. Such is the Father's heart. And as Sam likes to say in his benedictions, the one who promised is faithful, and he will surely do it. Thanks be to God. May it be so. Father, please bring the experience of the life-giving hands and heart of Jesus into our life, so much so that we extend hearts and hands to one another and to the hurting world in our Savior's name, and so imitate your love, our Heavenly Father. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.